All right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Excellent, excellent. I'm glad you're here. My name is Frank, and I'm one of the pastors, and uh, uh, it's just good to be here. And, and I hope that you find this to be a really great place to kind of hang out and learn about this Jesus that we've, uh, we've been learning about. We've been in a series called What in the World's Going On? For 12 weeks, we've been talking about all the stuff that's going on in the world, and tonight we're actually going to open the book of Revelation. I know. Thank you. It's been a while. Um, now, Revelation is the summation of the Bible, so we'll start with Genesis and we'll work our way. No, just kidding. We'll get there. Let me read to you something that I think is very, very moving. The drama's done. Why then does anyone step forth? Because one did survive the wreck. It's so chance that after Parsi's disappearance, I was he whom the fates ordained to take the place of Ahab's bowsman. When that bowsman assumed the vacant post, the same who, when on the last day the three men were tossed from the rocking boat, was dropped astern for almost a whole day and night. I floated on a soft and dirge-like mane. The unharming sharks then glided by as if with padlocks on their mouth. The savage seahawk sailed with sheathed beaks. On the second day, a sail drew nearer, nearer, and picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel that in her retracing search after her missing children only found an orphan. Is that not powerful? Is that not the most amazing ending to a book? That was the last chapter of Moby Dick. Trying to read the last chapter of Moby Dick and make sense of it is trying to read the book of Revelation without reading the preceding 65 books. You see, this is a linear story from beginning to end. Everything builds one to the next. And yet often as believers, we try to pick up the book of Revelation and go, oh, okay, I'll understand this. And then we read it and it makes about as much sense to us as it does to take any classic novel and read the last chapter and try to make sense out of it. Those who try to read and understand the book of Revelation without first reading and understanding the Bible find themselves confused and bewildered. It's only in the context of the biblical story that this last book makes any sense. And once you understand the first 65 books, this last book is actually pretty easy. It's actually easy to understand. We're going to walk through it together. It's true of the book of Revelation that unless you read it in context with an understanding of the preceding books of the Bible, you're going to understand that the books of the Bible, the story of God, opens the curtain in Genesis and closes it in Revelation. And from beginning to end, themes are woven through this story. It is a book of literature. It's a story. It's God's story from beginning to end. The real story that we call the Bible is about real people who lived in very real places. They come to us through very real history. The Bible from beginning to end is written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors, and yet it's a unified work of literature. Between the first words of Genesis and the last words of Revelation, there is a story that runs through that is completed. The conflict is sin, 
The main character is God. And the theme is redemption. The book of Revelations is actually one of the easiest books of the Bible to read, provided that you do it with an understanding of what's already been written. You would never pick up a 2,000-page novel, read the last chapter, and then try to understand the story. The Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. In the text of the Bible, the Bible itself says this book was written by God. It's not something we decided. It's not something that we put upon that book. We didn't read this book and go, oh, God wrote that. No, the book itself claims to be the written word of God himself. In order to read and understand this book, we have to accept that the book itself says God literally breathed these words in and through it to us. You may not believe that to be true, but you can't engage the text without accepting that claim as being inherent in the text. The book of Revelations is rooted in the Old Testament. By reading and understanding the last chapter of this incredible story, you will understand the first 65 chapters so much better. In fact, in Revelation, 278 out of 404 verses, that's almost 70%, make a reference to the Old Testament. Satan hates the word of God particularly the books of Genesis and Revelation. Because in Genesis, Satan's doom is prophesied, and in the book of Revelation, it becomes a reality. In Genesis, we see the creation of the heavens and earth. In Revelation, we see the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis, we see the first Adam reigning on earth. In Revelation, we see Jesus, the last Adam, reigning in glory. In Genesis, we see the earthly bride brought to the first Adam. In Revelation, we see a heavenly bride brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. In Genesis, we see the beginning of death and the curse. And in Revelation, the Savior brings us to a state where there is no more death and there is no more curse. In the book of Genesis, man is driven from God's face in sin. In the book of Revelation, we see God's face in its full glory. In Genesis, Satan appears for the first time. In Revelation, he appears on earth for the last time. I believe that every story in the Bible talks about Jesus. If you read the Bible and you don't see Jesus everywhere, you need to reread it. He's the central character. He is the star of God's show. This book has for its subject Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. In fact... This last book is called the Revelation, not Revelations. There is one single revelation of one single hero and Messiah. The Greek word for revelation is the word in English where we get apocalypse. It literally means unveiling. It means to reveal what's hidden, to see what we have not yet seen. What's being revealed or unveiled in Revelation is Jesus himself. What God is revealing to us in this last book is Jesus as he really is. And as he will return at his second coming. 
The second coming of Christ will be so different from his first coming when his glory was in some way veiled. He came the first time to crucifixion. He's coming again to a coronation. Came the first time to shame. He's coming again to splendor. Came the first time to a tree. Next time to a throne. He came the first time and stored before, uh, stood before Pilate. He's coming again and Pilate will stand before him. He's coming again and Pilate will stand before him to be judged. He came the first time as a servant. He's coming again as sovereign. In order to understand this book, we have to look back and understand the other books of the Bible. Let me give you an example of this. Revelation 1.12. John speaking. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at my feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. And we see all this symbolism and we go, man, what is going on in this story? Lampstands and all this stuff. Well, fortunately, God helps us understand his own word. We go to Revelation 1.20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, now we understand what he's talking about. What about this son of man thing? Where did this guy come from? Where's this character from? Well, we've seen him before. We saw him in Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. Throughout the Bible, Jesus refers to himself over and over as the Son of Man. In fact, that's the claim that gets him crucified. He's the only person that ever claims that about himself. He's making the claim that he is the one referred to in Daniel 7. Got him killed. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they said he deserves death. Clearly, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7. That claim, if he's not God, is the highest form of blasphemy and deserves death. And the priests immediately recognized what he was saying when he said, I'm the Son of Man. 
You see, what happens is all these things that happen in Daniel and Ezekiel and Genesis and Thessalonians, all these stories, all these titles, all these images come together in Revelation. And you're going to discover as we study Revelation that we are constantly going back in the Bible to find terms and people and images. And what we understand is all this stuff in Revelation that makes no sense has already been written about in the Bible. In fact, there's no new concept introduced. If we understand the first 65 books, we will understand Revelation. It is the end of a literary story that has been going on. So let's get to it. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. The revelation. Like I said, in Greek, the apocalypsis, the means to unveil, to take the veil off, to show you something you haven't seen before, to reveal to you something that has been hidden from you. That's what revelation means. For that reason, it's not meant to be confusing. It's not as if God said, okay, I'm going to unveil something for you, but you're going to have to figure this out. It's going to be hard. That's not what the book of Revelation is about. It's not meant to be confusing. It's not meant to be a problem for you to solve or to work through. It's not meant to hide something. It's meant to be an unveiling. The same word used here was the word they used in a Jewish wedding to unveil the bride, to reveal her to her spouse. It means God has something he wants us to know. And he's put it in this book so we would know it. It's not like he's trying to hide something. He's unveiling something. He's telling us something supernaturally that we would not otherwise know, but he's going to tell it to us. So what is he unveiling? What's the big deal? Well, he's unveiling Jesus Christ. He is the one who's been veiled. Just like that bride has been veiled, Jesus is unveiled to us in Revelation to show us who he really is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Jesus came to earth to reveal to us the Father to show us what God would be like, to show us who God is. He came as God himself. And when he comes back the second time, he is going to be completely unveiled in his godness, if that's a word. Why is he being unveiled? What's the purpose? Why is God showing us this new side or this deeper side of Jesus? To show his servants the things that must soon take place. So the purpose of this book is for Christ to unveil himself, show us who he is, and then reveal to us or show to us what will soon happen in the future. And in the process, we're going to see him as he really is. That's the purpose of this book. Note that the revelation belongs to Jesus. It is about Jesus. And he is the one doing the revealing. And because of that, and because God wants his children to know what's happening, this book should be clear and easy to understand. 
So how did this information get to us? Did John just make this up? Did he finally go nuts on Patmos walking around the island and decided, well, let me tell a story. No. God tells us very specifically the person unveiling Christ. Revelation 1-2. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. He revealed this information, this unveiling of Jesus through an angel to the apostle John, the beloved disciple, the one who wrote the book of John and John 1, 2, and 3, and now we see the book of Revelation. This is a book of signs. The angel signified this message to John. It's a book that communicates in signs. It's it's true that these signs have been confusing and perhaps controversial. Yet they're necessary because John is a human and he's trying to describe for us as best he can the things he's seen in heaven. And there just aren't enough words. So he says things frequently like, well, it's like this, or it seems like this, or it looks like this, or it seems to have the color of this. These things are too incredible. John does not have the words for them. He's looking at this vision, and he's trying to describe in his own language for his own people what he's seeing. To us, this book is prophecy. But to John, it recorded unfolding history before him. We sometimes wonder if those who wrote the Bible understood they were writing scripture when they wrote it. In this particular tense, John definitely knew that he was writing holy scripture because he said, this is a revelation that I got straight from God himself. He knew it came from the Father through Jesus and not through any human. It was the word of God, testimony of Jesus Christ. The signs are also necessary because what's going to happen in our future is beyond even our words. We aren't going to be able to explain what happens. If God showed us a video, a movie of what's going to happen during the tribulation, we would be at a loss for words to describe it as best we can. And sometimes using a symbol carries a lot more power than using a word. It's one thing to call someone evil or bad, far more vivid to describe the image of a woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Many, many believers skip the book of Revelation. And as a result, they miss the blessing. The Anglican Church omits the Revelation in its regularly scheduled readings for both public worship and private devotions. It's a typical attitude towards the book of Revelation. Many people believe that only fanatics, only end-time prophecy crazy people dig deep into this book. And yet, this book... God says, is for anyone who wants to be blessed. Furthermore, John didn't say we had to understand everything in this book to get the blessing. 
He just said that we had to read it and to listen to it. We can be blessed by reading and hearing somehow, even if we don't understand it. The promise of blessing that John has in this book is there because this is far more than some human book. The text itself, notice in that verse, claims to be prophecy of God. The text itself says this is prophetic. This is a prophecy. This is what's going to happen. I'm telling you in advance. God and the people speak on behalf of God. So John is speaking to us, telling us what God is saying to us about things that should come or will come in the future. Revelation clearly makes the claim these are words from God that predict the future. And for those who keep what's written in it, the book of Revelation gives us far more than just information or some kind of prophetic speculation. It gives us things to keep. If we understand the book of Revelation, it's going to change the way we live. That's why we're going to be blessed. But since there's been so much controversy over the book of Revelation, let me just give you a quick overview of the four different views of the way Christians have looked at this book. One view is what's called the preterist view. This believes that the Revelation only dealt with the church in John's day. That it doesn't predict anything. That it doesn't say anything about the future. It just describes the events that were going on with the Roman government in the first century, towards the end of the first century. The book of Revelation was for them. It should stay there. It has nothing to do with us. That's, that's the preterist view. The historist view is that it is a sweeping, disordered panorama of all church history. That this book... Uh, in the historist's view, it predicts the future, but the future of the church age, not the future of end times. Revelation is full of symbols, they would say, that describe now. Th that, that this entire book is all about the church, Jesus' church, not about the end of the world, not about the end of us, but what will happen in the church age as the church moves forward. The poetic view, the third view, believes that Revelation is just a book of pictures and symbols. It's intended to encourage and comfort Christians who are being persecuted in John's day. They say it's not literal, it's not historic, it doesn't predict anything, it's just a book that has personal meaning to some people who lived in the first century. The futurist view, which is the one that I hold, believes that beginning with chapter 4, it deals with end times, the period directly preceding Jesus' return. It is a book primarily about what will happen in the future. Now, one thing that's clear about the book of Revelation is it must mean something. I mean, God put it at the end of his book. He could have left it out, but he didn't, so it must mean something. And the book itself says that Jesus gave it to show his servants something. To show us something. It's not some book of meaningless nonsense, which a lot of people will argue. It has the promise of a blessing, not the promise of confusion. Secondly, it claims to be predictive prophecy. The book itself says, 
I'm going to tell you things that which must shortly take place. The time is near. John wrote about events that were still in the future to him. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay. Well, very simply, John is writing this letter to seven churches in seven very real places that existed in John's day in Asia, which is now Turkey. He's writing this letter, he says, to these seven churches. Now, one of the things that's important as we begin to understand Revelation is numbers are significant in Revelation and throughout the Bible. The numbers 3, 7, and 12 always represent completion. Anytime you see 3, 7, or 12, it's talking about completion. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. When the disciples got down to 11, they were very uncomfortable and had to name somebody else the 12th one because they had to have 12. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three. We're going to see this show up over and over. Here we have seven churches. And we learn a few verses later in verse 11 which churches these are. Write what you see in this book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Okay, these are the churches that we're going to write to. These are very real churches in a very real place. Paul has told, I mean, John is being told what to write, and he's being told how to address the envelope. They're going to these seven churches. Now, what's interesting here is that Ephesus is John's church. Paul spent many years there establishing it in his third missionary journey, and he established it somewhere around 54 A.D., Ephesus was a very important city. It was a water port for ships, a city that was very wealthy. It had over 250,000 people. And when Paul left, John came in and ran the church. From Ephesus, the Roman roads go out in almost like a wagon wheel spike. The trade routes went out from Ephesus, the seaport. Each of these churches is on one of those roads. The next church is Smyrna. It's modern-day Izmir in Turkey. You can visit the site of each of these churches today. They're real places, real churches, who years ago were the church home of real believers. The other churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. John is writing a letter to each of them, and we will learn more about each of these different cities and why the letters were written to them and what they mean later. But for now, John is told to write to the seven churches. To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. The construction of who is, who was and who is to come is awkward because in the ancient Greek, there there really weren't words to describe that kind of phenomenon. You either were, you are, or you will be, but the idea that you were all three, there's no real Greek word for that. So what John says is, well, it's who is and who was and who is to come. It's never enough to say that God is or that he was or that he's just to come. 
As Lord of Eternity, he rules over the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. So he says this is from Jesus Christ, who is, was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Wow, seven spirits. We've seen seven stars. We're told those are the angels of the churches. We've seen seven lampstands, that's the church, and now seven spirits. Seven is the biblical number of completion. John is saying here, I'm bringing you a greeting from the Holy Spirit himself, the full, complete Holy Spirit. The seven spirits that are before his throne speaks to the perfection and completion of the Holy Spirit. John used an Old Testament description of the Spirit of God. The idea of seven spirits comes from Isaiah 11, chapter 2, or verse 2, where the Holy Spirit is given seven characteristics. Isaiah 11, 2, And the Spirit of the Lord, so it's the Spirit of the Lord, shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of fear of the Lord. The seven spirits of the Lord, in a sense, the completed Holy Spirit is there. Seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. It's not that there's seven different spirits of God, but the Spirit of the Lord has these seven characteristics, and he has all of them in fullness and perfection all the time. He talks about the firstborn of the dead. That Jesus was the first person resurrected. We, we learned about that a few weeks ago. That he is preeminent among all those who are or will be resurrected. He's the firstborn of many who will born, be born later. Now that firstborn term is critical to understand because it doesn't just mean birth order. It means position. In Jewish life, there were things that went to the firstborn that were power and position and importance. The, the idea of firstborn wasn't just a birth order. It was that person's essence. And Jesus is the firstborn of all. He's the ruler over kings. Before this book is over, we will see that he has dominion over every earthly king. And he rules in a kingdom, but it's not of this world. Note that the greeting to the churches that are in Turkey, the seven churches in Asia, grace from him who is and was and is to come, the Father. From the seven spirits who are before the throne, the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the Son. What he's saying is, I send you greetings from all of God. From the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are sending you greetings in this letter. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John says, look, this letter will bring glory and honor to Jesus. He freed us with his blood and he made us a kingdom of priests. Note the order here. He first loved and then he washed us. It wasn't that God washed us out of some sense of duty, cleaned us up, and then loved us because we were clean. He loved us first when we were dirty, and then he washed us in his blood. 
It would have been enough to love and cleanse them. But Jesus goes far beyond that and makes us kings and priests to his God and Father. That's a standing much higher than Adam ever had. We are kings. We are God's royalty. It comes with status and privilege and authority. We're priests, so we're God's special servants. We represent God to man, and we represent man to God. That's what a priest does. We sacrifice to him, and we receive blessings and a privileged access into his presence. That's what we do. And you see, this was shocking in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, in Jewish culture, you never combined a king and a priest. They were always separate. So the idea that God made us both kings and priests means there's a new covenant. And we can be like Jesus because he was king and he was a priest. Verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Wow. Wow. John is telling us that Jesus is returning just as he said he would do. This book is going to reveal more and more of him to us and tell us when that return will happen. Everyone, the apostles, they they believed Jesus was coming back at any moment. They expected his return. It was imminent. They thought he'd be back in their lifetime. Clearly, we see this with Paul and Peter. And they're both surprised when they get to the end of their life and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So what does it mean that he'll return soon? Well, Peter tells us that to the Lord, a a day is like a thousand years. But his return is closer than it's ever been. It's approaching. And people ask me this week, is it today? I said, well, if it's not today, it's more likely tomorrow. (laughs) Keep saying that for the rest of your life. We just experienced the Feast of Trumpets. We long for the rapture and the return of Jesus. We believe that this this feast foreshadows a day in the future when the actual event will occur. It is a strong annual reminder to us to get ready, to be ready, to sense that tension of, I can't wait to go and I want to stay. I can't wait to go, but I want to take people with me. You see, we're supposed to have an annual reminder that we are to foreshadow something that's going to happen. One day, I believe, on the Feast of Trumpets, we're going home. And every Feast of Trumpets until then foreshadows and builds in our heart an expectation and a sense of disappointment and relief when it turns out it didn't happen during that time. It gives us time to commit once again to the things of God. To think about, wow, if I was raptured tonight, am I really ready to talk to God about the things I've done or do I want a little bit more time here? It makes us reevaluate. He will return to the Mount of Olives to lead the Battle of Armageddon. And it's not going to be a secret. And we're told here that everyone will see it, particularly the Jewish people. By this time, the Jewish people will have returned to Jesus, they will trust him as their Messiah. And when they see him and their pierced hands and his pierced feet, it'll be a reminder of how they had previously rejected to him. Zechariah described that moment in his chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. 
so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. All the tribes of the earth, God says, will mourn because of him. When Jesus returns, it won't be only the Jewish people who are sorry that this happened to Jesus and sorry that it happened. There'll be many people from all tribes of the earth, some who are saved during the tribulation, and everyone's going to look at him and go, oh, we did this to him. 1-8, Jesus speaking, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. It's a quote from Jesus. I am who is, who was in the past, and who will be in the future. Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. That means he has authority over both that and everything that happens in between. That means Jesus has a plan for human history, that he directs human events towards a design fulfillment. Our lives aren't some simple random blind fate for some random meaningless or some endless cycle with no resolution. The word almighty translates in the Greek meaning the one who has his hand on everything. It speaks of a great sovereign control of Jesus over everything, past, present, and future. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. After Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection, John became the leader of the church at Ephesus. He'll become the last living apostle. All the others will die before him. All, to my knowledge, were martyred. Jesus spoke of this when he spoke to Peter about what would be happening. If you remember back in John 21, when Peter saw him talking about John, He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he wasn't to die. But if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? It seemed that many thought John would outlive them all. You get a clear sense in the Gospels that John was the youngest and likely their little brother. That he was more of a little brother to Jesus than a same age companion. You get this impression that most of the disciples are the same age as Jesus, probably in their early 30s. Matthew seems a bit older because he's established as a tax collector and he's always pictured and we just imagine him to be a bit older. But John... You get the impression that James and John were much younger, maybe in their late teens, early 20s. We know that John is the youngest because of where he sits at the Passover table. Okay, it goes around and he sits next to Jesus. The youngest always sits to the right of the leader of the Passover. Plus, at one point, James and John, get this, they send their mother to go ask Jesus to do something for him. So I think that puts them probably in their early 20s at the most. I mean, they look and they go, hey, mom, can you go talk to Jesus for us? Okay, I'm just saying a 30-something-year-old man, not going to do that. 
So most people believe that Jesus even treated John kind of like a little brother. Their interaction is different than his interactions with, say, Peter. John falls asleep with his head on Jesus' shoulder at the Passover supper. Not unusual for a teenager, but very unusual for an adult man. And you just get the sense as you read scripture and you see the way Jesus and John interacted that it was much more like an older brother. Now this book is likely written in AD 95. And that means at this time, John, if he was indeed the younger disciple and about 20 years old when Jesus was here, now he's pushing into his 80s. He's the last disciple. He's the last living apostle. He's the leader of the church at Ephesus. There were two major persecutions of Christians during the first century. The first one came under Nero from about 64 to 68 A.D. Okay, so 30 years after the crucifixion, Nero blamed the Christians for burning Rome, and he had a lot of them killed. And then it seemed to slow down a little bit until Domitian came in in 95-96. And we see this book is probably written just a few years before that persecution. Now, Rather than executing John, it seems that Domitian thought, well, let's just exile him to a deserted island. I mean, he's like 90 years old. He won't last that long. Let's just send him to Patmos. Patmos was their equivalent of um, um, Alcatraz. Yeah. I mean, it's basically it's off the island. It's out there in the middle. It's basically a rock. It's more than an island. It's a quarry. And it's most likely that John has been exiled to Patmos to get him away from Rome, to get him away from Ephesus, and to have him quit sharing the gospel with everybody. It's also possible, though, because John says, look, I'm here because of the gospel. People assume that means he's there because he's been exiled as a prisoner. But it's also possible that he was a missionary to the prisoners that were there, that he had gone to that island to reach the prisoners that were there. We don't know. What we know is he was at Patmos because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The island of Patmos is like Alcatraz. It was a prison island, a jail with no bars, rich in marble, and most of the prisoners were forced laborers in quarries. It's a rocky, desolate island, 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. And John says he was on Patmos because of the gospel. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that Sunday, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet On Sunday, he says, I was praying and I was deep in prayer and I was communicating with the Holy Spirit. And while I was praying, I heard a loud voice like a trumpet and it startled me like a sudden trumpet blast. Saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Why these seven churches? Notice that the first one is Ephesus. That's John's home church. Paul founded it, but John's now their leader. He's been exiled to Patmos. Ephesus was the major port, the central home of the Roman road system to get products throughout the empire. All of these churches are on those spokes that go out from Ephesus. Real churches, real places. And most likely they are church plants from Ephesus. 
that the church was established in Ephesus, and as the roads went out, so did the believers, and that these are church plants from that church in Ephesus. It's very likely that these were John's churches, that not only had he established Ephesus, but just up the road, he had helped plant and establish this church. And it's very likely that John had not only aware of each of these churches, but had probably preached there, visited there, and overseen what was happening there to some degree. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash across his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Note that the light doesn't come from lampstands. The light comes from the oil lamps themselves. The stands merely make the light more visible. That's why it's such a great picture of the church. We don't own the light. We don't possess the light. The light doesn't come from us. We display the light to the world. Who is this person? Seven lampstands walking among them. One like the Son of Man, white hair, burning eyes, bronze feet. Who could this be? Well, we've actually met this person before. Guess where? Back in Daniel, Daniel 10:4. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris. So Daniel has been exiled to Babylon. He's down by the river. Why is he down by the river? Because according to Jewish law, if there wasn't a synagogue there, the men were to meet down by the river. So he's going down to the river. He's at the river. And while he's there, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold, Euphaz, around his waist. His body was like barrel. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. And his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his word like the sound of a multitude. They're describing the same person with the words that they have at that moment to try to show us what this person looks like. We've met this person before. There's no new person introduced in Revelation. They've all been presented to us before. This is exactly the person that John sees in Revelation. Two independent accounts of the same person described as Daniel and John see him. So who is this person? Well, in Daniel, it's the pre-incarnate Christ. And in Revelation, it's the risen and glorified Christ. His eyes like flame of fire. Fire is associated with judgment in the scriptures. Jesus' eyes displayed the fire of searching, penetrating judgment. His feet are like fine brass. Since fire is connected with judgment, the feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, speaks of someone who's been through the fires of judgment and has come forth with purity. Jesus has been through the refiner's fire. His feet are bronze. They have been through the fires. He has survived the fire. Brass has always been a metal connected with judgment. It's a strong metal. It was the strongest metal in the ancient world, and it made up the altar in the temple, the brazen altar. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The stars are securely in the hands of Jesus. Since seven is the number of completion, we can say, look, Jesus has the whole church in his hands. There's not one church that he's not holding on to. The lampstands that represent the churches, he's walking among them. He's checking over them. He's making sure they're where they need to be. Every church is in his hand. He doesn't lose things that are in his hands. The idea of the sword, that's his word. His weapon is the word of God. John didn't necessarily see a sword coming out of his mouth. What he heard was him speak the penetrating power of his words, and it seemed to him as if a sharp sword was proceeding from his mouth. Everything in this vision speaks of strength and majesty and authority and righteousness. There is a huge difference between this vision and the effeminate portrayals of Jesus seen today. Is the Jesus that John saw? It's the real Jesus. Revelation is to reveal to us who he really is. What we can't get from scriptures, from Jesus, the shepherd, the lamb, walking around healing people and carrying lambs and, and doing all these wonderful things. What we can't get from scripture is the real version of who he is now that he is resurrected and in full of power and all power and authority has been given to him. So this revelation is to show us who Jesus really is. Now you should think about this. This is the only place in the Bible with one exception where we are given a physical description of Jesus. The only other place is in Isaiah 53.2. He had no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Those are the only two places in Scripture where we get any idea what Jesus looks like. The first one, he, there's really nothing to attract you to him. The second one, he's got eyes of fire and snow hair and, and brownish feet. So John has seen the risen and glorified Christ. He heard this voice. He turns around and he sees Jesus. So what does he do? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I took one look and I hit the deck. I passed out. I fell as though I was dead, fainted, dead away. I was in such an overwhelming experience that I could not remain conscious. Like I said, this idea that we're going to go to Jesus and have a conversation only when you wake up. Everyone who sees an angel in the Bible is scared to death. Imagine what it is like to see the glorified, risen Christ. This is John, little brother John. Walked with him for three years, knew his voice, saw every miracle that he did. Probably as close to Jesus as anybody and more familiar with Jesus as anybody. The last one living who's seen Jesus on earth as he ascended. He would be the best to know Jesus and to be the most comfortable in his presence. He took one look and boom, he's out. And the same thing happened to Daniel. Daniel 10.8. So I was left alone and I saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. 
My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sound of his words. I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Well, clearly we've seen the risen Christ. Then Christ says, just chill for a minute. I have something I want you to do. The next verse is probably the most important verse in all of Revelation on how we are to read this book. Verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those that are, those that are to take place after this. Jesus reassures John that that he's given him three of his titles. He scares the snot out of him. He drops to the ground. And he says, you know, you don't need to be afraid because I'm the first and the last. God of all eternity. The God of eternity, past and future. John, I'm the first and the last. And then he tells him, and I'm the one who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. I'm the one that died and resurrected, he says, John. And then he says, I have the key of Hades and death. Some imagine that the devil is somehow the Lord of hell. That is not true. Clearly, we're wrong, for Jesus holds the key of Hades and death, and we can trust that he never lets the devil borrow the keys. So we are told clearly... From the risen Christ, he tells him what he wants him to do. Therefore, write the things you've seen that are and that are to take place after this. Things that you've seen, past tense. Things that are, present tense. Things that will take place, future tense. Chapter 1 is what was. John was on the island of Patmos. Chapter 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches that John knew intimately. And that's the things that are right now. Chapters 4 through 22 are the things that are to take place after this, what will be. So we are told clearly that if you're to read this book, God is revealing, not hiding. Every image, every vision, every character that we will see in Revelation has been shown to us earlier in previous books. Most in the prophetic books of Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Matthew, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but all of it has been presented to us before. Our job in this last chapter is to go back and pull out these people, these visions, these things that John's describing that close the story. Think of the last book of the Bible as the last of 66 different books. The themes all coming to an end in the last book, all coming together. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven uh, stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's nice to think of the idea that every church would have its own angel. I like to think about that, you know, that, that remnant would have its own angel. And the angel would just watch over us and guide us and that every church has its own angel. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Makes me feel good, believe me. I would love to have that to be true. It may be true, I don't know. Maybe each church does have its own angel. Hope so. But remember the word angel in Hebrew means messenger. The one who is to bring the message to the church. The one who is to tell the church what God is leading them to tell them. 
Often in the Bible, angels were messengers, but the one responsible for bringing the message of God to the church is the pastor. The one who is entrusted with the message that God has for that specific congregation. It's unlikely that Jesus would have to update an angel on the status of a church that that angel was over. Make sense? But in these letters, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to say, look, here's what I love about your church. Here's what I don't love about your church. Here's what you need to change. The angel of the church already knows that. The pastor does not. So it's most likely that these seven letters are written to the seven pastors of the seven churches. And we're going to go into that more as we go forward. In fact, the very first letter is written to John himself because he is the pastor at Ephesus. These were the ones responsible for delivering God's message. So these are the seven leaders of the seven churches. And John is leading Ephesus. Seven stars are the seven pastors. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. We each have the light of the world that we're responsible for displaying. And the church takes the light each of us has and casts a bright light into the world. So that's the first chapter of Revelation. Not that complicated. A little bit nuts, perhaps. Not cryptic. Not hidden. Not real confusing. Next week, we're going to look to see what God has to say to the pastors of these churches and to us. Because it turns out that while these are specific letters to specific churches, they're also a letter to the global church that includes us. And we're going to learn a lot about what was at that time and what currently is the status of today's church. So as you look through Revelation, as you begin to process this, take the fear away and begin to understand that this is something God wants us to know. And he wants us to understand it. And he's going to unveil it to us. And I'm going to tell you, it's incredible. Because as we get into the deeper chapters of Revelation, you are going to understand the themes of the Bible like you've never understood them before. Because we are going to go back and pick out all the themes, all the images, and what this really means. So I hope this week, as you continue to process the events of the world, as you continue to think about what God is doing, that you spend some time with him and with his book, recognizing that he really wanted us to get it. He really didn't want us to live in fear. He didn't want us to be unaware of what was happening. And so he revealed to us, and most importantly, what he wanted to reveal more than anything else is he wanted his children to have a clear image of Jesus Christ as he really is the risen, glorified Savior. Let's pray. God, I thank you that um, you've given us this book. I thank you that you love us so much that you want us to understand what you want to reveal. God, the more we see Jesus the way he really is, the more we fall on our faces in worship the more we hit the deck like John did, the more we understand how holy and how glorified and his power and his authority and his sovereignty and the way he really is and not the way the world portrays him to be, the more we are blown away by his holiness. And then the idea that he would love us and that we're part of his family, it just just makes us fall on our faces. God, the word... Worship literally means to fall down, to bow down. So God, this week as we go, would you just allow us to worship in everything that we do, everything we talk about, everything that we pray?
process every encounter, God, would you just allow us to be that light? Not because we own the light, but because you're shining through us. And God, as we open the book of Revelation, as we get into these seven letters to seven churches, and then we begin to see the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and, and we just begin to understand that you're in sovereign control. And we are so thankful that you love us. So God, keep us burning for you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are going to move to a couple things. Um, one is an announcement that um, I was hoping I wouldn't have to make. Um, but this week, David Leach went to see the Lord uh, and to go home. Uh, as many of you know, he um, has been a member of Remnant since the beginning. Uh, he had a brain tumor. He and Donna have spent the last two years, and many of you have spent a lot of time with them and their family praying. And Thursday night, God decided it was time for him to go home. Um, we are all grieving. Um, yeah. Uh, at the same time, his balance is back, his coordination's back, his body's healed, and he's in the presence of Jesus. And that's incredible. We are going to celebrate that. Um, the service is likely going to be in two weeks, uh, somewhere around the 14th. So uh, they have family from around the world that need to come in, so we're going to help them do that. Donna wanted me to tell you that she is fine. Um, she's not a person who likes to be flooded with tons of people, so she's in her own space. Tammy and I met with her for a couple hours today. She's doing well, uh, as expected. So keep them in your prayers. We will let you know what they need. We'll let you know more details about what's going on. Um, but... Um, yeah, Donna and Cody, uh, his daughter, and their family. So keep them in your prayers. Happy buckets in the back. Um, feel free to contribute what God's doing here. We missed a week because of the storm, so um, help us if, if God's leading you to do that. Um, food is in the back after this service, so I'd love for you to join us there. If you're new to Remnant, I'd love to meet you. Um, so why don't you stand up for me? God has revealed to us and to you who Jesus really is. The more you look at him, the more you understand him, the more it changes who you are. No one stands in the presence of God, either physically or spiritually, without being changed. So this week, focus on who he really is and begin to understand what this revelation is all about. We can't, look, can't wait to see what God's going to do in the weeks to come. We love you. We'll see you back next week, Lord willing. Thank you.